Good morning, everyone. I am Salim Ismail, and welcome to the Salim Ismail podcast. This is episode number five. We are completely thrilled to have back with us for part two, uh, Vinay Gupta, uh, who is going to talk through the work that he's doing. Last time we talked about uh, some more spiritual aspects, plus some, some systemic things that are happening in the world, and his view on how do you solve for uh, things that could kill humanity, like being hungry, being cold, being too hot, etc. And today we're going to take a crack at what is his take on this and what is his effort in us making a transformation in all this. Uh, Vinay, welcome. Hey, good to see you again. Very much so. Uh, love that scarf. As I said earlier, I don't think I could pull it off, but you've done a good job of... I'm, I'm totally going to send you one and we'll see. I <laughs> see you <laughs> next time we're on. We'll both we'll both have one. So uh, let's summarize a little bit the conversation uh, from the other day, just because it was so uh, wide ranging and important. We were talking about the kind of the systemic civilization efforts. We talked about the fact that no civilization in the past has ever survived, uh, and there are some triggers that cause systemic collapse. We uh, have lots of uh, uh, ways of looking at that. Uh, you had this incredible. Uh, PDF that we'll put another link to in the in the uh, video description of how do you survive this and can you summarize that that PDF for the viewers in a minute? Sure. So the document is called Dealing in Security, and it's an eighteen point checklist for mapping the systems which keep civilization stable. Um, the reason it can be so short and so simple is that it starts with uh, the needs of the individual to survive. And human beings only really have six needs. They need to be not too cold, they need not to be too hot, they need not to be hungry, thirsty, ill, or injured. And you put those six risks at the edge of the map, and then between the person and those risks, you put all the buffers that protect us. So for too cold, you have clothing, you have the house that you're in, you have the uh, electricity or the gas that goes into the house. That then connects to municipal or regional power infrastructure, which connects to global financial markets. And that infrastructure, that stack, is what protects you. Uh, and the same is true for the food system. It's same, the same is true for the water system. So it's a way of mapping the systems that keep you alive. And that's the base layer. Next layer up is mapping the systems that allow you to form groups and communities. You need communications. You need transport. You need a place to meet people. Uh, and then above that, there are the layers that cover the function of large organizations and the functions of the nation state. Um, and it came out of work that I was doing uh, for the U.S. Office of Secretary of Defense on large-scale natural disaster management. Uh, and it's been um, quite heavily, a couple of governments have adopted it for certain kinds of planning, uh, but it's a public domain tool. Anybody can download it, anybody can use it. Uh, and it's quite clear and it's quite simple. It's the kind of thing you could teach Eagle Scouts and they wouldn't have any problems handling it. Now, um, given the... Uh elegance of the model you've put together and the very clear prescriptive roadmap that's there, right? Make sure this is there, that's there, that's there. You would think that many organizations, um, Red Cross, UNHCR, uh, um, thousands of NGOs should be using something like that. And it seems like they're not. Uh, um, how do you How do you explain that? Um, they're still building disaster relief tents that look almost exactly like military surplus post-World War II. Um, and the practices for managing refugee camps change slower than, for example, the practices for getting cars registered at the DMV. <laughs> okay. 
Right. right. You know, there, there's, there's also the there's also the biases that you have in these organizations where they're good at doing this one thing and everything. Uh, it's the hammer on the nail problem. It's hammer the nail problem, and also, I mean, when you're doing something safety critical, if you're doing it at an acceptable level, you think of innovation as being predominantly a danger. Hmm. So, yes. you know, the Red Cross and the similar agencies, they think they're doing an okay job. And at that point, they tend to be very hesitant to innovate because what if the innovation fails in the field? Yeah. This is what we call the immune system problem, where mm -hmm. we are not good at trying new things and we're not good at trying um, uh, systemically new things and definitely not disruptively new things, right? Mm -hmm. Bankers fight Bitcoin, taxis fight Uber. It's like pervasive across the world. Um, Absolutely. Now... So you've you've got a view and a mind, and also we talked some of, about some of your spiritual practices where you've done deep uh, meditations and a lot of inner work. Um, you're one of the few people that can navigate this systemic uh, world without losing their their center. Um, yes, you've chosen you've chosen a particular path to go down to as your contribution to humanity, and mm. uh, um, the, what this podcast is all about is the fact that this uh, there's a transformation that's, that humanity is going through that's possibly the biggest transformation we will have ever yet seen in the couple hundred thousand years of our existence. Um, uh, I look at it that way. Do you look at it that way, at that scale? Um, yes. I mean, a lot of my work is inspired by the concept of sort of a post-human universe. So... You know, why is it important that Elon Musk gets a Mars base going and then expands across the solar system? It's because it allows the evolutionary process that created us to run far into the future in forms that would be unrecognizable. Hmm. You know, in a million years, it's not that unlikely that there'll be a bunch of people running around who look pretty much like us, but it's also almost certain there'll be a bunch of people running around who look nothing at all like us at all because they've been genetically engineered or they've had evolutionary pressure or you know, their software running on robots or whatever it is, you know, the sort of the unbounded, unknowable future requires us to get through this bottleneck. And then what happens after that is that life will continue to find a way. Yes, and who, with or without us. With or without us. But I mean, yeah. if we wipe out the entire show now, life is not going to find a way because we can't prove that anything is alive anywhere else in the universe. Right. We have to get this one right. Yes. Um, I did. A, I studied my degrees in theoretical physics, and I studied astrophysics. And the Drake equation was one of the most fun and fascinating uh, pieces of that whole thing. I actually met Frank Drake um, at, oh, a, wow. at, at a at oh, wow. so a buying homage to those fellows. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and what's incredible is every single piece of that equation uh, has proved to be several orders of magnitude to the optimistic side. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there aren't as many binary star systems as they thought. Many more stars have planets than they thought. Many more stars have stable uh, uh, planets with stable orbits, et cetera, et cetera. And so yeah. um, yeah. it's looking pretty damn optimistic. And the, the boundaries of that equation were at the very most optimistic. We have uh, radio technology life in this galaxy. Mm. And for sure in the next you know, 20 or 30 million galaxies nearby, out of the 400 billion galaxies or whatever there are out there. So that was mm -hmm. the thing. But it's looking more and more that it's like te the world, the universe is teeming with life according to that equation. It leads mm -hmm. us to the Fermi paradox, right? Yep. Uh, and I'd love to get your take on the Fermi paradox. Mm. So um, pause, pause just for a second. Just for the, for, for the viewers, the Fermi paradox is the question that if there's so much 
uh, likely life out in the universe, why haven't we seen it? Uh, and so that's the question that Fermi posed, and we've been kind of debating that question on now for ages. But Vina, your take on that. Um, so I'm going to read you uh, uh, a little bit from Wikipedia about the Fermi paradox. Okay. Um, so this is from a book uh, by a guy called Georgi Marx called The Voice of the Martians. Um, and so Fermi came to his overwhelming question, if this has all been happening, they should have arrived right now, so where are they? It was Leo Slizzard, by the way, the guy who invented the atomic bomb as a concept, uh, a man with an impish sense of humor who supplied the perfect reply to the Fermi paradox. They're among us, he said, but they call themselves Hungarians. <laughs> okay. And uh, this was a running joke at Los Alamos uh, because so many of the bomb team had gone to a pretty much a single university in Hungary. You know, a whole wow. bunch of these people came from a very, very, very tiny, you know, district in Budapest. Um, and they had gone from Hungary to Germany, and then they'd gone from Germany to America for obvious reasons, uh, and then they wound up at Los Alamos, and they were you know, universally extremely brilliant. So the running joke was that they were the descendants of a Martian scout ship that had stopped there in, like, 1900 and had some kids with the locals and then left. And given this is a running joke. Given the uniqueness of the language, you, you might actually have some credence there. Well, I mean, it was the running joke of the bomb team that they were aliens from outer space. You know, if somebody says that they're an alien from outer space and then they build you an atomic bomb, maybe you should believe them. <laughs> Just saying, seems plausible, right? Okay, um, so so we've got this we've got this uh, big challenge with civilization uh, in terms mm -hmm. of how do we transition. Uh, the couple of framings that we've been using are either scarcity to abundance, we're making that transition, or Mad mm -hmm. Max versus Star Trek. Are there other yep. broad framings that you've seen that are that you find relevant and appropriate in this conversation? Sure. So for me, everything is rooted in post-colonial theory, right? And indeed, post-colonial practice, right? The planet ran basically fine until the Industrial Revolution, right? There was misery, there was disease, there was bloodshed, but human beings didn't represent a threat to the ecological balance of nature. And if there was going to be an apocalypse, it wasn't going to be caused by a bunch of people digging in fields with sticks. Hmm. So the technologically driven causes of apocalyptic risk are really things that have only built up over the last couple of hundred years. Yes. Right? Tech risk is new. So there is a safe descent path, which is civilization crashes. We lose most of the engineering. We might retain the scientific knowledge, but we wouldn't have the ability to build things like accelerators or computers. Human population probably halves or quarters because of the problems maintaining agriculture. And we go back to sort of the height of medieval civilization, but with massively more advanced scientific knowledge. And we stick there for as long as it takes to rebuild. So essentially, we bounce back to an agrarian society. Um, but, with germ, but with germ theory. Wow. And an okay. Aryan society with germ theory is a whole different story. Yeah. So that's the kind of safe-ish descent path. Okay. Right? It's extremely terrible, but it's a lot less terrible than the nuclear war descent path. Yes. Right. So that's our bedrock. Right. Okay. Um, and I've done a, an enormous amount of work. I probably put 10 years of work into figuring out how to manage that scenario. Okay. Is that written up anywhere? Because this is something I'm sure we would love to hear more about. Well, I mean, this is the core of the resilience map system, okay. right? The simple critical infrastructure map about mapping basic needs. 
is in the context of a situation where you might have to do population fan out and take the entire population of the cities and put them back on agricultural land because the cities no longer have infrastructure. Hmm. You know, um, given the the density and again the elegance of that and the amount of time that you've mind share you've put into that, maybe we hmm. need a maybe we need a part three where we just spend the entire uh, episode and the entire conversation just mm. going through that in detail and make having it come alive for all the viewers and listeners. What do you sure. think of that? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the big the big driver concept to understand this is that infrastructure is a land multiplier. So the carrying capacity of an acre of land with a modern infrastructure harness around it is, say, 30 times the carrying capacity of that land with no infrastructure. Got so it. if you lose critical if you lose critical infrastructure, what happens is that the cities have to fan out over vast geographic areas to sustain the population. Yep. And in the process of doing that, you wind back at an agricultural trend. You, you wind up with basically everybody becomes a farmer again. Um, and there's a lot of work on um, small farm agriculture, looking at the efficiency, like the amount of food you can get per acre. Yeah. And if you have skilled human labor whose job it is to do nothing but get the maximum amount of food out of an acre, the agricultural productivity is multiple times what you get out of a cornfield. Yes. Um, so there is a descent path there into a kind of Gandhi style localism, which we could take if we were unable to sustain high tech civilization. The question is how many people starve on the way down? Mm. Right. And the answer is not a few. Right. It's a bad scene if you have to do that. But the difference between that and Mad Max is enormous. Yes. Right? Now, Mad Max now, might be a 90% population drop down. This kind of model might be 50%. It might even be 10 or 20%. We don't know yet. Well, how, how do you even make that calculation? Like, how do you even how do you even think about the number of people? Uh, like, do you run some back of the envelope calculations as to, mm -hmm. okay, if infrastructure fails and you have 30 times less land, if that's the case, then you have these crops fail, you, you, your food supply and food distribution fails, mm -hmm. and therefore you have to survive on the land X percent of people. It's like a former, yeah. it's like a Drake equation equivalent. Like a Drake, yeah, apply, exactly. Apply to that. Um, you know, what percentage of your population are insulin-dependent diabetic? What percentage are dependent on other high-tech medications? But, you know, this stuff is not abstract. Cuba went through a limited form of that. Kerala and India went through a limited form of that. Hmm. Um, you know, a Kerala has something like 500 kilograms of carbon emissions per person per year, and they've got a lifespan of close to 80 and 95% literacy. Right? It's a completely agrarian society with European level demographics on a sustainable carbon. Footprint. So, so there are some precedents and some prior experiences on which we can run some models, basically. Oh yeah, Cuba went experience. from having a diesel-based civilization to having no access to fossil fuels at all, hardly. Hmm. They dropped calorific intake by 30%, and then they built it back up over 10 years as they reorganized agriculture. And by the end of that period, they had practically no input from fossil fuels in a successful organic farming civilization. Incredible things are possible, but the global elite will not look at those as being potential futures, because those are futures in which there are no meaningful global elites. Yes. Those are futures in which everything is back to a very simple basic level, and then people are largely farming. And you know, I think it's worth you know putting that in the spectrum of futures. You know, everybody thinks that there's only one way down from high tech civilization, which is total catastrophic collapse in the Mad Max scenario. 
Um, yeah. But, but there are pathways back down, which are by no means preferable, but they're survivable. Right? And once we put right. that on the table, it's kind of like, well, you know, if we can't hold this thing because we can't get enough renewable energy and we can't organize and blah, 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 you, you try and hit that shelf. And if you miss that shelf, then you wind up in Mad Max. But it's important that that shelf is there. It's a very meaningful shelf. Now, how do you, so uh, uh, we'll come, we'll, I think we'll have to do a separate discussion just on this. Let's focus mm -hmm. on the topic for today, which is okay. You've got this incredible worldview, decades and years of studying uh, systemic impacts of various things and, and understanding. And, and to then express that in terms of your line of work and the business that you're building and the cause that you're building, you've chosen material, right? Yes, so absolutely. Why don't we go through this in three stages? One is, what is it? Number two, why that? Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about the broader implications of that, right? So, okay. so number one, uh, um, what is material? Okay, so the way that I answer that question depends on who's asking, right? So for our customers, right, Materium is a way of taking a physical asset like a building or a patch of land or a computer or a gold bar or an electric bike, a physical tangible object, could also be an intellectual property license or an I, uh, but let's not deal with that for a second. You take a physical object, you get an NFT. I know it's a dirty word right now, but let's just use it. You get an NFT and the owner of the NFT in 170 countries becomes the legal owner of the physical object. Hmm. Now that's mostly legal work. We put five years and $5 million into the legal machinery, an enormous amount of research to look at all of the possible configurations of the blockchain and, te and technology and law and all the jurisdictions that we could potentially operate in. And, you know, we really did a very thorough analysis to get into a position where there's a credible functional legal machinery for taking a physical thing, tying it to an NFT. You buy the NFT, you get the physical thing. Now ask me why that's worth doing. Why is that worth doing? Because you can then drag along with the NFT extremely rich data about what the object is yes now ask me why that was that's worth why doing. is that relevant because that's where you put all the esg data okay so i'm gonna buy this here caliper for measuring how big things are right here's my little measuring doohickey yep i'm gonna buy this as an nft right attached to it is a bunch of XML files that tell you exactly how big it is and what it does and what its tolerances are and what battery it runs on and how precisely it measures. And then there's an XML file that tells you what it's made of. And then there are all the material safety data sheets. And then there's an analysis from some third party group that says, this thing was manufactured in you know, Shenzhen, China, and the working and labor conditions of the people working there would be average for Chinese factory workers in that area we give this thing a D for human rights, right? It's not awful. It's not great. It's like any other electronic. So the ability to pull those data records alongside the thing for step one. Step two is the thing has a digital tag on it or it has maybe a 2D barcode. It depends how valuable the thing is, which means that when I come to sell this thing to you, I say, here's the thing. Here's what it is. Here's the data record. Yeah. And maybe somebody else verifies the thing is undamaged and gives you that information as well. And then I pass it over to you. 
it's like buying a car. You want the service history of the car to give you some sense of where it's been, how many miles and so on, and what accidents it may or may not have had. Um, mm -hmm. So the fact that you can add environmental metadata and uh, fair trade type uh, questions that come up from this for any object in the world, mm -hmm. uh, that allows you to do data gathering at a global scale to then um, make choices in much more enlightened ways. Um, and not that you have to make the choices, but that your agent software can make the choices for you. Yes, and AI will solve for that pretty quickly. Uh, well, it doesn't even need to be AI because all this stuff is referenced. Remember a good friend, the semantic web? Yes. This is semantic blockchain. Okay. Oh, this is great. So I, I want to take a small segue for a second, if you can. Um, there are a uh, meaningful number of smart people that completely thrash blockchain technologies, right? And they say it's mm -hmm. useless. A database could just solve for all of this with some yes. governance, et cetera. This is complete hoo-ha, et cetera. What's your yes. response to those folks about the block? why the blockchain is profoundly important? I have my view, but I'm more curious about yeah. yours. They're not that smart. <laughs> okay. Right. What are they missing? Uh, general relativity. Okay. General relativity and the political economy of the world create a problem, and there is only one known solution to that problem, and we call it the blockchain. But you have to be very smart to understand that problem. It, uh, it's fascinating to me that the smartest people I know are massive blockchain enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. uh, the, somebody told me Bitcoin was a was a your your ability to take on Bitcoin was a full measure of a future IQ test. It took me about two years after reading the Bitcoin white paper to actually understand the implications. Yeah, and it hasn't gotten any easier because there's so much bullshit noise around the blockchain from people that don't understand it that actually penetrating to the heart of the story has gotten harder, not easier. Hmm. But at the heart of the story, this is driven by physics. Okay, say more about that. Okay, so you and I are having this conversation over Zoom. Okay, there is a probably roughly tenth of a second delay between you saying something and it going around the world to reach me. Right. And that delay is caused by the speed of light. Yep. Right. So the speed of light delay for to get a message all the way around the world is about a seventh of a second. Um, that doesn't seem like very long, but a modern high-frequency trading system will do more than a million transactions in a second. So what you have is a 100,000 transaction delay between two computers that are right next to each other doing trade and me doing a trade with a machine on the other side of the world. Hmm. Okay. So I agree that I'm going to sell this thing to somebody in Australia. I send the message to Australia. In the meantime, I sell it 100,000 times to a bunch of other people that are in the same data center that I'm in. And when it arrives in Australia, you send me the money. And by the time it comes back, I've collected the money from 100,000 other people as well. Right? Got it. So to summarize, there is no way of synchronizing all of the world's computers to agree about the state of a piece of property. So just to reflect this back to make sure I understand it, 
there's the well-known problem of having data centers as close to the stock trading floor as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and when you take this to a global scale, then you need to solve uh, in what you're connecting that to the double spend problem. Yes, um, this is this is what the double spend problem is. The double spend problem is about light latency, hmm. right? In, in computer science, it's dressed up as a thing called the CAP theorem, but the CAP theorem is computer science addressing general relativity. Right. So, so I I, I completely love this. The the people that don't understand blockchain, the ish, real issues, is they don't understand general relativity or special relativity, and. Yep. The sad truth is very, 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 very few people understand special relativity anyway. So you've got a double layer problem there. Oh, yeah, of course, you're right. It is it is general, it is special <laughs> general relativity. Yeah, absolutely, right? Because um, we're, we're doing with low speed. Yes. So as I said before, my, <laughs> the the, advantage of talking to this stuff with physicists, because you well, get it. Well, hang, hang on. So I'll, I'll make this distinction just so everybody's very, very clear. My basic understanding of physics ends at the distinction of special and, and general. I was able to make that distinction, but that's it. That's where it ends. So don't ask me for anything uh, more than that. So uh, I love this framing of this. So the, the, the double spend problem is essentially a, a, a signal time processing problem, especially mm -hmm. in an age of computers. And therefore, if you can solve that problem, which the blockchain does, then nothing will work over time, especially as computers speed up, and therefore the blockchain becomes an incredibly necessary piece of public infrastructure. Well, so if we just want to solve the synchronization problem, right, there is a simple solution, which is we put one computer in one country and everybody trades using that computer. Hey, let's just do it with an SQL database, right? Right. Now, the problem with this part, see, this is why you need multiple combined systems of knowledge to see this clearly. Hmm. So if you just have the relativity thing, the answer is just put one machine in one place, stick a pin in it, that's the trading, how off we go. So for example, Chicago Board of Trade is in Chicago and the commodities market runs out of Chicago. Why might this present a problem? Well, I mean, you've got a single point of failure uh, right and there. And it sucks to be Chinese in that model because you're always trading a massive disadvantage relative to the people who are trading in America. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now you say, well, why didn't the Chinese just put their assets in America under American law, trading on an American hub, and then they can trade with exactly the same kind of rights as they could trade with, right? Because everybody's the same distance from the machine. Jobs now, right? Now, <laughs> I'm saying, now we have to submit all of our assets to American legal control if we want to be able to trade at parity. Right. And then if Trump comes to power. You see, right? Yeah. So it's this intersection between general relativity and political economy that creates the problem. Do, now, uh, just have, hold on a second. <clears throat> L let's just repeat this for, for future uh, um, conversation. The issue is special relativity intersecting with political economy, which is the heart of the problem and the nature of the problem that we're addressing here. And Satoshi completely understood this. Yep. Okay. So that's the blockchain. Let's segue back to... No, no, wait, wait. We haven't gotten to the, we haven't gotten to the punchline yet. Okay. <clears throat> this is only the warm-up. Okay. So the solution to the problem is this. Right? We can't put a single trading machine 
in a single place and have people trade because it is politically disadvantageous and therefore people won't do it. If we have a whole bunch of different local trading mechanisms, all of them have very limited liquidity because they're only trading inside of a, a local region. Right. And what this results in is the balkanization of global trade. Yep. Now, if you have a heavily balkanized global trading system, is war more or less likely between the trading blocks than if we have a global trading system of global liquidity? Okay. If there's a Chinese exchange and an American exchange and a European exchange and a South American exchange and an African exchange and an Indian exchange, and everybody's trading only with their neighbors, all of those exchanges have limited liquidity and it cuts the interdependency between the trade blocks. Yes. And then the system works. Um, and again, you go back to the blockchain being the only infrastructure that can manage that with any level of trust. Oh, hang on. We're not there yet. Oh, okay, got Okay, Not there yet. So okay. if we build these continental level, level trading bourses, okay. we've balkanized the global market. Yeah. The balkanized blocks are then much more insular. They're inward facing. They're doing less business internationally. There's less interdependency. They're more likely to resolve their problems by war. Yes. Right. And the global economy is less efficient because you have limited liquidity. So if we go down the route of every continent has its own trading bourse, and the dominant power in that continent decides that everybody's going to trade under their rules, you can do that, but it results in a world which is balkanized, fragmented, not interdependent, and it's more likely to create war. It also makes it dramatically different to do any kind of war-scale regulation. Yes, impossible, in fact. Super hard, right? Okay. So the alternative is that we need a global trading infrastructure <clears throat> where commodities are traded on a global system which doesn't advantage anybody based on their geographical location or their uh, legal uh, status, hmm. right? The folks are all able to trade equitably. It doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your citizenship is. You connect to the system and you can trade. But relativity gets in the way because the speed of light delay means that you're always going to be able to trade with your neighbor better than you can trade with somebody on the side of the world unless we fix it. Right. Now we can get to the punchline. Okay. Right? And, and in this so, environment of balkanized or the, the downward slope of balkanization of trading systems, mm -hmm. uh, the blockchain, because of the resilience of it, plus the... No, no, um, no, we're not there yet. No, no, not we there yet. Go to the punchline. Yeah. Then first we go to the punchline, right? So right. how do we make it possible for you to trade with your neighbor and somebody on the other side of the world on the same equitable basis where neither one has advantage based on geography? Okay. And the answer is, punchline, we quantize time. Okay. So time, if you deal with time as a continuous variable, if somebody is next to me, then they're trading at you know, two microseconds. And if somebody's on the other side of the world, they're trading at 200 milliseconds. Yes. So instead we create a new quantized unit of time. And the time unit that we're going to use is called a block. Block. Got it. Wow. Hang on a second. The penny kind of just dropped for me around a lot of this stuff. Okay. And by having the block be big enough that the whole world can be uh, covered, uh-huh. The speed of time limit is a seventh of a second or a tenth of a second. 
right? Right. So if the block is 10 seconds long, the speed of light phenomena only apply at the very ends of the blocks. Yeah. 98% of the trade is in the middle of the block and it's unaffected by any kind of locality effect. And you think and and you think Satoshi saw all this? All of this is implied in the CAP theorem. So the CAP theorem is about fundamental computer science about distributed systems. The CAP theorem includes the reasoning about signal propagation and relativity to create a result. Right. Hmm. So CAP is um what is it? Continuity, availability, uh, coherence, availability, and partition tolerance, something like that. I can never remember what the letters stand for, but it's the thing which basically says if you're describing a distributed system, there are trade offs because of the propagation delay means you can't just do magic synchronization. And then if the system partitions into two parts, you have to decide what happens to those two parts. Do they continue to run independently or does one of them turn itself off or how does it know what to do, blah, 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 blah. So the CAP theorem just neatly encapsulated this understanding. And then all the engineers talking about this stuff said, oh, well, it's just in the CAP theorem. So the understanding right. that it was based in this fundamental physics was wrapped in this wrapper called CAP theorem. And in yeah. the early days of blockchain conferences, you would stand up and say CAP theorem and a third of the room would not. Yeah. Right. I did an event in 2016, 17 in Switzerland, and I stood up on stage and said CAP theorem, and there was one hand in a room of 500 people because we'd gotten diluted out. Yes. So the original wizards that understood that all this stuff was driven by physics got diluted out with a mass of people that didn't understand. And even in the physics community, the political economy of trade is not heavily studied by people that understand relativity. Wow. Okay. Now, you have to be standing in a very specific place to see the elephant. Yeah. But if you're standing in that specific place, it's very, very, very obvious that this elephant is the only way forward for us. Okay. So I'm super excited because uh, for the first time, I've heard a cogent, uh, tight explanation about blockchain and the rationale behind it, the need for it, and the inevitability of it, right? So uh, we've had that segue. Now let's get into Materium. Uh, uh, talk about that and why you've done it. So we agree that there is a need, whether we'll get it or not is an open question, but there is a need for a global equitable trade backbone. Okay. The technology layer for that is potentially an evolved blockchain because it allows people to trade without disadvantage based on their jurisdiction or their physical location. However, we're still going to need an interface between that system and those trades and the state law inside of each of the nation states and inside of each of the subunits like Alabama or Kentucky or Arkansas, whatever it is. Hmm. We have to have a legal interface between this blockchain global data trading machinery and the law that controls who owns physical assets. Okay. So I built it. Okay. So uh, I'm going to uh, switch over to an analogy from my database days. I used to do database design in my early days. Yeah, you had multiple different uh, technologies, DB2 and VMS and other things that, that you had to all interface to. And so there was a technology book called ODBC, uh, which was a universal translator between databases. And so you could mm -hmm. run a SQL query over here and deliver the result over there uh, through this through this interface. It sounds to me like what you've done is built that equivalent. Uh, would Does that analogy work for you? 
It's like that, but for law. Yes. Okay. So, you know, there are some international treaties that are extremely helpful. And so we take the global treaties that are most applicable to managing trade, and we interface between the international treaties and the technological foundations of the blockchain. And so, so do, you have wire... to, do you have to do that at every? Uh, do you have to do that at every federal jurisdiction, or there are blocks that share the same law like the EU, and therefore you can just knock off a bunch of countries with one of those? So the the business end of this is the treaties that govern world trade are remarkably consistent. Hmm. So, um, you know, think of things like, um, oh, uh, WIPO, right? World Intellectual Property Organization or the World Trade Organization or, you know, any of these kind of large bodies, right? Yeah. Lots of countries subscribe to these things. They harmonize the regulation with those things in certain key areas of trade. And this is why we've got global liquidity and you can import and export stuff in a sort of reasonably manageable way. Yeah. So... The treaty infrastructure that we build on is the legal treaties that provide harmonization of contracting <clears throat> all over the world. Okay. Um, so we have a, a very, very carefully constructed set of contracts that take a blockchain transaction and then place it inside of the auspices of uh, the relevant international treaties such that the blockchain transaction will be visible inside of all of the countries which are signatories to that treaties as a legitimate uh, legal transaction. So the treaty harmonizes 170 countries. We comply very strictly with the provisions of the treaty. That means in 170 countries, the thing that happened on the blockchain will be interpreted as being a legal event, which can then be used as the basis for litigation, which is what it means for something to be real in the real world. Hmm. You can't get it into a court; it doesn't exist. Now, when you, which is fantastic, because you've created then a legal stack between any physical or tradable asset and uh, a blockchain object. Yep. Okay. That's exactly what we've done. Okay. So then, uh, let's talk about. Uh, I'm just going to repeat that you've created a legally enforceable stack between any tradable physical or digital asset and a blockchain object. Um, let's talk about the initial use cases. Where does this apply with the biggest relevance earliest? Um, so we can do real estate. Right? We did the first real estate listing uh, sort of Q4 of last year. Um, okay. So because of the way that this thing's architected, the closing of the real estate deal uh, requires you to do a KYC check so we know the money is clean. Yeah. The seller knows the money is clean. And then the settlement of the real estate deal is uh, instantaneous. Now, you've bought and sold houses. How long did it take? Oh, it's a nightmare. Yep. Um, and so the ability to get people into a position where they can settle a real estate deal immediately, the commercial value of that is almost incalculable. And it has to be constructed very, very carefully because you can't just magically clear real estate. Right? So the way that it works is that you basically pre-compute and pre-cash the entire transactional bundle associated with the real estate and then when somebody activates the deal on the blockchain, all of that stuff transfers over to protect their rights before they send the money. Right. 
And that whole process is just very, very, very potent. Especially because you've got large money sums in play. Yeah. Okay. So real estate is a great place to start. Um, the other thing that's super worth doing is um, uh, anything involving sort of high value vaulted assets. So you'd think things yep. like gold, collectibles, collectibles wine. paintings, wine is an excellent use case, whiskey is an excellent use case. All of these kinds of things are just phenomenally powerful uh, because what you get in the system is that the asset can sit there in the vault for years without moving. And then each of the subsequent people that wants to buy or sell the asset just buys and sells the NFT. So they do this uh, They do this today with, uh, say, bottles of wine, right? Which gets stored in some bonded warehouse, which is specifically mm -hmm. geared for wine selling. And some super rare bottle of Pichon uh, Lalonde 1961 uh, or Chateau Latour 1961, which is a prototypical mm -hmm. bottle, um, will change paper and change ownership from wine auctions, but the bottle never moves. Bottle never moves. So essentially you've done the same thing for the digital world and digitized that entire process. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and you know, wine, there are roughly $2 trillion of wine sitting in the ground right now. Okay. Um, wine and whiskey together are something like a billion dollars. That's right. Yeah, close to a trillion dollars of transactions a year for wine and whiskey together. Because anywhere in the world, wherever you are, somebody within 200 meters will sell you a bottle of red wine. <laughs> this is very true. Anywhere a, you go. As a wine enthusiast, I can concur. Yeah. Um, um, so, I mean, you know, these things are not save the world, climate change, you know, fix the humanitarian crisis kind of transactions. If we started on that basis, you know, we'd be dealing with fair trade collectives making, you know, handwoven furniture and the whole thing would have like, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny applicability. And as a result, we wouldn't be able to scale and we wouldn't really get anywhere. So we started with the big industrial use cases where there's an enormous concentration of transactional uncertainty. Mm. Because for this whole system to work, mm. we have to hoover up almost all of the transactional uncertainty. Because in the blockchain environment, when you send the money, you can't get it, get it back again. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So you have escrow so, systems and also all sorts of things built in. There, there's a whole machinery there to get rid of any ambiguity about what the goods are, to make sure that parties are appropriately legally exposed, to warranty, to guarantee, to certify, to ensure, you know, a whole architecture. Hmm. And the inspiration for this was Visa. So... Visa kind of caps out a transactions of say ten or twenty thousand dollars, right? Same thing is true for eBay. Same thing is true for Amazon. There's just a threshold above which you don't sell things because you don't trust the dispute resolution if something goes wrong because you're dealing with customer service, not court, and you have very limited rights, right? So e-commerce just never really happened above the level of Visa transaction because e-commerce really means catalog shopping with credit cards. Yeah. So if we want to get into the B2B space and high-value transactions, the blockchain payment rail is adequate to do that work. But you need to upgrade it with decision-making and dispute resolution, which are adequate to handle $100,000, million, $10 million transactions. Mm. And this is why we put so much time into commercial arbitration, because that's how the grown-up world handles commercial disputes. So 
Do you go after this by creating kind of a global marketplace for anything? Or do you go after this with vertical by vertical and uh, getting the the supply side and buy side solved with all the complexity vertical by vertical? Um, so the approach that we've taken is we think of ourselves as being like certificate authorities for the RV internet. Okay. Remember late 1990s, there was yes. the thought, it was VeriSign, there were all these guys. You decide you want to do digital trade, you buy a certificate from these guys, they do a bunch of cryptography on your behalf and they hand you a digital cert. That then becomes your passport to be able to buy and sell on the internet. Yes. So we we don't want to run the exchanges. We don't want to run the marketplaces. We don't want to do deal origination. We want to take the existing entities that are doing the buying, the selling, the deal origination and just get them the new cryptography uh, protection layer. So the old cryptography protection layer was the little padlock and HTTPS and it protected the credit card. The new cryptography protection layer is the blockchain and the digital certificates that we produce and the dispute resolution machinery and the insurance. You upgrade to that system and now you can do e-commerce for you know, $2 million assets and, and nothing in the system blinks. And do you do a do you do a transaction uh, a transaction based fee as a business model? What's the business model for Materium in, in a scenario like that where you're the certificate issuer of that transaction? Yeah. So yes, exactly. We take a fee, uh, and we take the fee in two places. The first sale when the object is sold digitally for the first time, we take a little percentage of that. Uh, and then for every subsequent sale, we take a percentage of the fees of the service providers that are protecting and insuring that deal. Okay. Um, now, in an earlier conversation, uh, you'd started with William Shatner Collectibles. Yeah, that's right. The first thing we did was Shatner. And how's that going? And what's the next category that you're going after? So Shatner was two years ago. Hmm. Um and since then, we did a half a million year old hand axe and a set of uh, paintings. And we did some other stuff in fine art to verify we could do it. The most expensive fine art piece we did was we listed a $200,000 Warhol. Um, wow. And the most expensive piece of fine art that has sold so far is $102,000 for a trumpet played by an Australian DJ. Wow. Yeah, it's a start. It's quite a trumpet. Um, it's quite a trumpet. Well, he's quite a DJ. He's one of the most famous DJs in the world. His name is Timmy Trumpet, and he sold his trumpet. I thought it was remarkable. Um, so what we were doing for the last two years was increasing the value of the assets we were capable of working with. Started at $500. Then we did a bunch of stuff for a few thousand dollars. Then we got up to kind of fifty and $100,000. We did some gold bars, which is a significant thing. Hmm. Um and then we finally got the real estate thing done. And we've done our first real estate listing. And this year we've got three gold refineries, all of which are large. They're the upper end of gold refineries, um, uh, several gold dealers, uh, two or three whiskey distilleries, and a couple of entities that are buying and selling uh, whiskey for investments. Uh, we have another 50-ish million dollars of real estate. Um, and the first of the circular economy users, uh, which is a very high-end outdoor uh, clothing brand, 
that specializes in garments which are intended to last for a long time. So they're, they're really going after durability. They're talking about things that will last for a century. Um, now, all of that stuff is in the development pipeline. Mm. You know, so I'm not naming names on any of that stuff. But these are projects which have been in the development pipeline and gradually maturing for you know several months, in some cases almost a year. Um, so Q1, Q2, if half of that stuff goes through, we'll do roughly 50 million of new assets listed. Uh, and if the whale deal comes through, it would be a portfolio of about a billion bucks worth of assets, uh, which are in a private equity context, uh, which would be listed kind of as a continuous stream over, I don't know how long they're going to take to do it, months. Um, so we're at the sort of very early stage of commercialization on this stuff, but we're still operating inside of us asset classes which have absolutely minimal global beneficial impact. We're just doing the very, very meat and potatoes trade stuff because until there is a really healthy company, we're not in a position to get involved in the hard end of this, which is, okay, so you want to be able to certify that your clothes weren't made by slave labor because that gets us into an adversarial relationship with our customers where we're forcing them to tell the truth about how they make their clothes. And that's going to require us to have some real market power before we can get into that scrap. So um, let me uh, uh, cover off a thorny question here. Mm. Um, when you are accepting, so I understand the the high end of the stack. This is like Tesla building the luxury cars, making getting its teeth cut on that, so that you can then go downstream into smaller things where the where the environmental impact becomes more relevant for uh, ESG and saving the world type stuff. Now mm -hmm. we've got a huge certification problem on that side of things like fair trade diamonds or fair trade coffee or rarely fair trade. The worst um, uh, example I've heard of this is fishing where some of you say these are cleanly caught salmon, whatever. And then when you look underneath the thing, there's not, there's no way of verifying in reality whether that thing was cleanly or fairly caught or not. How do you yep. deal with that uh, garbage in garbage out problem? Okay. So um, the first thing is we very explicitly don't do food. Okay. Um, there's a company that we're kind of friends with in London called Provenance. Okay. And Provenance yep. does something which is um, very, very specialized in supply chain tracking for things like food. Right. Okay. So they're Special. focused on that problem. They're focused on exactly that problem. They're very knowledgeable. They're very skilled. They've been at it for years. Uh, and, you know, we had a lot of conversations with them back in the day about, you know, sort of, how they looked at the world, how we looked at the world. We went after hard assets. They went after consumer goods. They're quite deeply integrated into the um, sort of supermarket supply chains. Okay. And they're just working towards solving that problem. Um, the reason that we don't go after that kind of stuff partly is out of respect for them, but partly it's because it is dramatically harder than doing something like verifying real estate. In Massive. real estate, you can see it with a satellite. Yeah. You know, if you have to, you can see it with a satellite. You can check it in Google Maps. You can send somebody around there. You know, like think of Deliveroo, but for taking pictures of things. You send somebody around there to take pictures of the property from the outside as it is right here, right now. You know, there are all kinds of things that you can do to verify real estate. But if you're out on a boat in the middle of the sea and somebody is asking you to verify exactly how you caught these fish, this is a super hard problem. Hmm. And, you know, our approach here is, I mean, when I was younger, 
I would tend to start with the hardest case first, because if you could do the hardest case first, you could do anything. Now, perhaps a little wiser. Um, the, the this this much the, a little a titch a titch wiser. Um, I think many of us who've been through multiple startups get to this point of okay, leave the super hard stuff, and then you you focus on the low hanging fruit. And and uh, there's lots of ways of bridging over to that. If you spend all your time kind of going for the hard stuff, you may never solve the thing at all. So I, mean, frankly, I see the thing I see that we're the doing. The thing that we're doing is hard enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yes, I can totally. I can totally. So um, right now, if somebody wants to use Materium, mm -hmm. um, do they have an existing trade a set of trades that they want to? Uh, digitize and they come to you? Is it one-off like that? Or, uh, to what extent is the self-provisioning? Um, so if you've got an industrial process that's producing serialized property, okay, you know everything that comes off the industrial process is the same, but they have different serial numbers. For gold, say the bars might have different weight. Yeah. Bottles of wine, you would number them. Um, so as long as we can differentiate exactly what the property is that's coming off the industrial process... What we can do is essentially certify the industrial process, and then at that point, it's relatively self-service to actually issue the passports. I say okay. relatively because it's still in, you know, there's still an ERP integration step that has to be done, and there are some complex legalities around exactly what happens when you issue. But generally speaking, if the goods are of uniform properties and they're coming off a machine, it's relatively turnkey when you do another batch. If you're dealing with something like real estate, it's much less turnkey. Um, but if you have a consortium of a law firm, an insurer, a surveyor, and maybe a couple of other actors, that consortium can template the process, and then they have an industrial machine for producing real estate deals. So as long as we've got places to correctly you know, manage the data, track the liability, absorb risk, and so on, as long as those components don't change deal on deal, the paperwork is relatively uh, repeatable. But the way that this goes in the long run is, um, you know what an ISDA is? ISDA? No. So all the derivatives in the world, pretty much, are on a set of standardized paperwork called the ISDA, International Swaps and Derivatives Association. They produce a template contract. It's versioned. It evolves very slowly over time. So what we envisage is a sort of you know, blockchain trade contract it's the best legal minds of the generation. It's the best commercial minds of the generation. The thing has been worked on for 15 years. It's 8,000 pages long. There are artificial intelligences which have learned how to speak it fluently. And 40% of world trade goes over exactly the same legals. And that's how whoa, we Whoa, 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 whoa. 40% uh, of world trade goes over this obscure ISDA. Program. No, 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 no. I'm saying if we did something for for ISDA, um, there's something like 600 trillion of value on ISDA contracts. On the derivatives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Something like 600 trillion. It could be actually multiple times of that. I'm pulling that number from memory. We have to check it. Um, so what I'm suggesting is ISDA is a template contract, which is essentially a global regulatory regime for derivatives. Okay. Similarly, for physical trade we could wind up with a materium template contract, which winds up growing more and more sophisticated and larger over time. 
But the advantage that we have that is the didn't is AI. Yes. So the ability to customize the contracts by adding appendices, which are written by AI and then verified by human lawyers initially, means that we could do template contracts with mass configurability for specific asset classes in specific jurisdictions. Here's the appendix for doing bicycle uh, electric bicycle sales in Bangladesh. Mm. AI looks at the law, AI figures out what's legal, AI drafts the specialized contract, it's an appendix to the large contract, a law firm stands behind the analysis and says, yes, this is our work, they have humans check it, and so you get this kind of mass configurability of contract in a way that we never had previously. Wonderful. Um, now, when you're applying this type of an approach, uh, legal configuration. Some of this will need to be tested in courts and court systems, and you need to run the dispute resolution mechanism up and down the stack to make sure it holds. Right? Um, um, do you do that so before use... you take on an asset class, or in process of? So the the dispute resolution mechanism that we use already handles a fairly substantial percentage of global trade. This is the part where you said it sits under the WTO standards, et cetera. So, you, so actually that whole level of complexity, that whole layer has basically been handled already and there's lots of precedents for it. 60 years of work. I mean, you know, those treaties are 60 years old. They're already handling trillions of dollars of transactions a year. All that we did was we figured out how to get blockchain transactions very precisely legally located right in the middle of the orthodoxy. Hmm. It's, it's the bridging together of the orthodox and the unorthodox, the innovative and the extremely durable, you know, the innovative and the, the core of our civilization's trade machinery, right? You know, <clears throat> the, the sort of linking of the consolidated to the numinous. You know, the blockchain is still kind of a weird spectral thing on the horizon for most people. Right. Certainly most, most real business people, the blockchain is like, they can just about see a little blinking light on the horizon and they heard IBM did something with it and maybe it'll turn into something one day. Yeah. The people that got into the blockchain were the crazy people. Yes. Right. And as a result, the blockchain has been perceived to have crazy person characteristics. So yes. now all the crazy people are leaving for AI, right? <laughs> the will then be perceived as being a much less crazy person filled zone. And you know what you will see is a bunch of really remarkably dull people doing remarkably dull stuff. Which is what you want to be it's perceived as dull and boring and, and less stable. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I have, um, Materium has been very, very fortunate to uh, have one of our kind of senior staff come from government. Uh, and, you know, he was the commercial director for the UK Home Office for 10 years. Hmm. Right, the safest pair of hands in government. He also managed the run, uh, the running of the Olympic Games in London. He was the guy that delivered that. Wow! And you know, he's the guy who's you know he's a commercial director. He's the leadership team. So I was the kind of visionary bridge builder between the technologies. I could look at all of these extraordinary things and say, hey, they're kind of the same if you look at it from here. And so I built a research team. We spent millions of dollars assembling that team, running that team, doing the research, making the impossible possible. And now we're beginning to pass on internally a whole bunch of authority to people whose job it is to make the possible actual. Right. Two different mindsets, right? 
seeing the impossible and making it possible, and then taking a possibility and actually safely delivering it for customers where there's value on the line. These are two different kinds of ideas, two different kinds yeah. of work. In, in, going together, we deliver. In, in the startup world, we often talk about it as the uh, pioneers, the settlers, and the town planners. Yeah, and so yeah, you yeah. need different mentalities for each of those people that if you put a pioneer in as a as a town planner, it's never going to work. You get a lot of chaos oh there. And so, you know, everybody in and everybody in Materium is very familiar with this idea of possible to actual is a different yeah. skill set from impossible to possible. And yes. we write problems in the company based on, you know, do we know how to do this or do we not know how to do this? We know how to yeah. do it. It goes to one set of people. If we have no idea what we're looking at, it's a blank wall. Okay, you send it to the other people. Because you know, picking the right mind for the right problem is so much more important than having people just be generically smart. That's 80% of the problem is finding the right fit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my the, other 20, the other 20% is getting them to talk to each other in a language that both sides understand. <laughs> now, that's the hard, hard problem of consciousness right there. Oh, um, telling me. Okay, so you you've got to a point where the you've gone from the impossible to the possible and in certain cases from the possible to the actual um mm-hmm. in any business or ecosystem like you're building there are certain uh, uh bottlenecks where if you could clear those bottlenecks uh, you know we would have mass flourishing and unicorns and butterflies everywhere what are the mm. bottlenecks that hold back your explosive growth because you know, when you have an exponential organization, which you clearly are, and we kind of talk about a lot, you have an arbitrary long flat top period of the curve before things suddenly take off. And so yes. identifying those bottlenecks and figuring out how to navigate those in chasms or whatever metaphor you want to choose is critical. What are those for you in in uh, from your perspective of building this? And how long have you been at this now? So we started in 2017. Okay. Four years of basically dry research, and then we started doing the first customer transactions beginning of 21. Went from $500 a unit at the beginning of 21 to the most recent listing, which was uh, uh, $2 million, which is the first real estate transaction. Um, you know, By end of Q2, uh, I think it is reasonable to expect that we would have done about $50 million in assets, and it could be several hundred million. So at that point, once we've done $50 million of transactions, at that point, it's pretty clear the thing is for real, and we no longer need people to understand how it works. We just need them to understand what to do with it. Yes. Um, Because the awkward part of this, and I I don't want to, I mean, there's not an easy way of doing this that doesn't sound terribly arrogant, but there aren't that many people that can look at the technology look at the trade, look at the legalities, and look at the global crisis and see a way of joining together the pieces into something that has the potential to work and actually save us. Yes. And the problem that we've had is in the early stages, we had to explain how it worked. And the number of VCs that I have seen who were super enthusiastic about blockchain and went in with the dogma that what happened on the blockchain was completely invisible to courts and there was no way of linking the physical and the digital. And it's like, no, no, we totally did it. In fact, I spent a year being paid in digital money that was tokens backed by gold in 1999. 
And that was 20 something years ago. Like we know it works. It worked 20 years ago. We've just delivered this again, only now it's everything. Mm. And the, the the doctrine of the, 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 this is the blockchain, there are, there are no laws, code is the only law, the physical and the digital, they don't meet. The, even in an area which is very, very, very advanced technically, the cultural misunderstandings of what law really is are bone deep. Well, and which is which is anathema from a for a funding scenario where you're trying to box everything in, understanding completely uh, oh. technology risk, market risk, execution risk. You mm -hmm. run your analysis and off you go. And often the most game changing ideas fit are blurry beyond belief across all of those different areas, right? So the, um, the three um, the three models that we sort of think of as our, our priors are um, uh, Visa. Right. Yeah. Um, Xanadu. Hey, explain um, that one. Uh, Xanadu was where they invented the hyperlink. Okay. Uh, it was the inventor of hyper hypertext, Ted Nelson. Yeah. And um, Xerox Park. Okay. Right. You know, computers weren't graphical. There were no pictures. There were no images. It was teletype. Yes. You came along and said to people, graphical user interface and mouse what right xerox even though they invented the idea they could move on it um ted nelson invents the whole concept of hypertext and foresees the web as being a disaster of improperly managed property rights and broken links og og right um and then there was visa which is the only one of these things where the person that invented it is also the person that fully realized it and you know when visa started the idea that you could combine uh, credit, currency conversion, insurance, dispute resolution, identity, uh, and payments into a single product. Mm. I mean, inconceivable. It, it, inconceivable, right? Right. So this kind of unification of things which were previously separate in separate intellectual domains requires a particular kind of connective mindset. Yes. And that connective mindset is really, really, really rare in finance, even inside of VCs. So we have pitched this thing very, very repetitively to people that have legendary reputations as being the farthest sightest people in VC. And we've pitched it to them, and we've come back a year later with a bunch more evidence we've pitched to them. We've come back a year later with a bunch more evidence we've pitched to them. And they just cannot get the horns through the door. Yeah. You know, I went through this myself with uh, an early technology uh, venture called PubSub which was published mm -hmm. in subscribe systems at internet scale in 2001. And wow. uh, my business partner at the time had architected Lotus Notes and Microsoft Office and helped Tim Berners-Lee implement uh, a hypertext wow. at CERN. Um, and wow. so he's got this like force gump of technology kind of character to this fellow. I meet him and I say, what, you know, what would you work on? And he goes, publish and subscribe because we're moving to taking all of these different things and and everything becomes a matching problem on the yep. internet. Everything is so let's build a matching engine. And we built a pure algorithm matching engine, which a normal database matches events at about a few hundred events per second. His wow. algorithm could do 3 billion matches a second on a desktop, right? Whoa. And you, you talk to VCs about this and it was so far past their capability mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. understand the implications it was impossible to raise money. Now we were doing it also in Manhattan 
we're building an internet infrastructure product company in the early 2000s was like, you know, you're breaking bylaws. Um, uh, but I, I, it's very easy to be early and essentially you're having to teach everybody the space. But I think you've made a very important point in, in what you just said, which is to do, to attack the problem in the way that you're going about it, you have to stitch together and have deep knowledge and insights about legal systems, political systems, trade systems, computation, and blockchain. And you're, you fit that Venn diagram in a very, very rare way, right? Um, so is there anything I, comparable I do, out there? To, sorry? I do three or four other things as well. I, well, uh, along with the many other hats that correspond with all the colors in your scarf. Um, uh, yes. So, so what? Uh, uh, what are the things that are holding you back? Aside from, it sounds like capital is one. Capital, oh yeah. I mean, we're we're a bit capital constrained for sure. Um, it certainly doesn't help that we're doing this in the enormous crater, which is the blockchain industry right now. Yeah. Um, and if we didn't have AI to basically draw off the scam artists and the lunatics, um, you know, we'd be in much worse condition than we are. Like we know there's going to be a massive migration of flash cash to AI, but th the perception is that the people remaining in the blockchain space will, the will be the people that really know how to make it perform. Yeah. You know, the kind of Perez surge cycle, like we're currently at the turning point and we're ideally positioned to be one of the successful companies in the turning point phase of this. Um, so capital is certainly a constraint. Um, um, Markets where, you know, the, there are lots of high value commodity markets where you've got about 30 people in the world trading the thing. And they're mostly trading the thing on the back of Excel spreadsheets and email. And the world is littered with these things. So what we could really use would be some of these commodity markets where you have, you know, a relatively small group of traders who are trading something which is quite valuable, high trust environment, high value transactions very limited access to kind of market infrastructure. Um, and, you know, this is things like, you know, recycled tin or catalytic converter, you know, gold recycling, um, you know, strange industrial commodities, weird lacquers that you put on top of, you know, microchips, memory chips. You know, there, there are also these kind of little niche markets for things like that. We could use a couple of those in places where we can onboard lots of buyers and lots of sellers and then have an entity that chooses to run the exchange as its primary business activity. And then we sit there in the background doing the legal technical architecture that supports the integration of the buyers, the sellers, and the exchanges, handles the regulatory and all the rest of that stuff. We can use a couple of use cases like that mm. to show the transformative efficiency jump between the whole thing is running um, you know, on literal emails and express spreadsheets, which is surprisingly common, onto proper exchange infrastructure. Yeah. So your ideal uh, customer, if I can call it that, is mm -hmm. somebody who wants to run an exchange in or create a market in some global uh, good that can be traded and has a reasonable amount of complexity to, to that transaction, real estate being an, an obvious one. But mm -hmm. car, rare cars would be an obvious other one. There's the litany yeah, of these collectibles that go down this path. So yeah. that, that becomes very obvious. Talk about how this goes into the previous conversation of saving the world. Mm. How does this lead us to that? Why is this the logjam breaker that opens up the floodgates to a systemic change in how we navigate ourselves as humanity? Okay, finally the fun part. <laughs> 
Um, so here we need to do a little bit of a frame shift. We need to do a little bit of a reset in kind of the gear that we're thinking in, uh, because we're going to go from the very, very, very large to the very, very, very small. Okay. So let's go back to our friendly neighborhood digital caliper. Right. Yep. It measures and size. Uh, hold on, hold on a second. Why mm -hmm. do you have a caliper sitting on your desk? Uh, I quite often want to know how big things are. I see. Okay. So I'm I'm sort of um, I'm very interested in the way that things fit and the way that things are made made to fit. So you know, I'll give you an example, right? You know, this is a small tool for popping this uh, open electronics. Yeah. Right. And it has a very, very thin, flexible piece of metal for opening stuff, right? Okay. So if you want to know how thick this is, you're not going to be able to do that with the ruler, right? Yep. In fact, it's actually too thin for this caliber to be able to really be reliable. It's kind of a cheap caliber. Uh, but that question of like, so how big is this thing? And will this thing fit inside of that thing? And, you know, like I, I ask that question often enough that the annoyance of using a ruler and having it be kind of imprecise is just like, junk right? right yes it will fit inside of this box no it will not fit inside of this box yes this one is thicker than that one um you know because i spend so much time thinking about the attributes of physical things right. i've become very sensitized to the physical world in quite a strange way um and and you know one of the things that i'm notorious for is having things that fit very precisely so one of my favorite objects is i have a little indian style milk pail okay holds about a liter and a half yes and I have a tin cup the kind of tin cup you would take like camping and if you drop the milk pail into the tin cup it falls very slowly because the walls are so precisely aligned that the air can only escape very slowly and the thing just gently hisses as it falls down right uh, I have some storage tubs under my desk the storage tubs under my desk fit with about there the four of them will fit under the desk between the desk legs with less than five millimeters of clearance over about two meters of space. And this to me is the most satisfying thing in the world. Like, see, it fits perfectly. Did, did you ever read uh did you ever read uh, Zen and the Automotive Capital Maintenance? Oh yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. there's a there's a wonderful there's a wonderful story in that about how he's got his old bike and his friend has a BMW. And every time there's a problem with the BMW, he sends it off to the shop and he's very objective to the bike. And he's got this one on Zen one to one relationship with the, his bike, and he gets incredible satisfaction of solving some gap in the brake pads with a, a, a piece of Coke can, which has exactly right thickness, and that for him is incredibly infinitely elegant. And the BMW bike owner is looking at him with disgust, going, "My God, you just put a piece of Coke can into your bike, and it's anathema." And he uses that as the as the the starting point of the difference between objective reality and subject reality. Uh, so you you feel, feel to me very much on the coke can as a shimmy uh, for that world. So oh, yeah. let's go back to how Materium uh, is that is that uh, is that perfect little thing of the right size to solve for things. Let's go back to your caliper. So here's our caliper, right? Okay. So the question here is. What is this? Right? So it's a physical aggregate, right? There is some plastic, there is some metal, there are some circuits, there's a battery, there's a little screen. It's a, it's a set of components, right? Every one of those components came off a production line. All the raw materials also came off a production line. So if we want to ask what this is, is it a digital caliper or is it the sum of its components? 
depends Some who you're asking. Components, yeah. Some of its components. So if I buy this thing on Amazon, it just says digital caliper. There is no way for me to get to the component list. Yes. So I'm buying this thing, but I don't know what it is. Hmm. I have one functional attribute described, digital caliper following precision. Okay, fine. But I actually only have one attribute defined. All of the other 50 million things that we might want to know about this, the, the seller knows, but the buyer does not. Yes. Massive information asymmetry between buyers and sellers. Massive power asymmetry between buyers and sellers. Hmm. Right? You do not want to buy T-shirts from slave labor. You cannot ask the vendor, is this T-shirt made by slaves, and get an honest, reliable answer. Yes. So we're constantly being kept in the dark about what we're buying. And as a result, we have no ability to make rational, moral decisions about our buying behavior. And we're, we're trapped by this. We all have a sort of deep-rooted, uncomfortable moral anxiety because we know that we're harming the world by living our lives, but we're not presented with any information that allows us to sensibly damage, minimize. I mean, you you see the worst um, exemplar of this is some place like Walmart, where people buy cheap plastic goods made in China with absolutely no understanding of it. And there's only one uh, one vector that's optimized for, which is price. And everything else is shoved under the, under the hood. So I, I understand what you mean by that. And literally, Chinese prison labor goods, right? Chinese prison labor goods, American prison labor goods, making their way into the industrial supply chain. Right? Whoa, mm. this is bad. And we buy this stuff because we're not told what we're buying. And if we ask, they'll lie to us. Right. So that sense of moral unease, right, is pervasive anybody that has the time and the resources to spend some time thinking about their consumer choices and thinking about the morality of their life knows that they're being constantly morally contaminated because they're buying things that are made in horrible ways or they're buying things that somebody cut down rainforest to grow or you know whatever it happens to be there's just a litany of problems and we all are basically breathing this stuff in like a kind of moral toxin that's a powerful and important and very profound comment. So by not knowing, you're you're essentially absorbing it into yourself and the energy of all of the component parts uh, essentially comes into you, into your, your realm. Mm-hmm. That's wow. Got it. Okay. Now, I did not figure this out for myself, right? Um, the guy who figured this out was the skinhead liberator, right? This is Gandhi. Hmm. Satya Graha. Wow. Okay. I, right? I will not ingest the moral poison of English colonialism by buying English goods. I refuse to eat the moral poison of English colonialism by buying, by buying English goods. I will buy handmade Indian goods. Right? I cannot afford a suit made of Indian goods. I can't afford... Uh, a shawl, right? So he wears the shawl and the shorts, dhoti and loincloth. Yeah. Right? Homespun. Say, right, homespun made yeah. by Indians, 
manually, expensive compared to the loom-made cloth from Manchester, but you could eat it without taking in the toxin. Yeah. Right? Dear sir, would you like this hamburger with or without the rat poison? Oof. All right, pause, pause just for a second. So uh, it's very clear to the crunchy granola types that if you eat a Doritos on a nonstop basis and uh, take in all the chemicals and ingest all the chemicals, that you, because we are what we eat and we can make that distinction, um, you basically take on the chemicals of that and the downstream chemicals and upstream chemicals come into your body mm -hmm. and you poison yourself. There's a massive uh, leap and an important one energetically that when you consume a caliper or a, a, a plastic toy, that mm -hmm. the energetically you're bringing on board and into your realm, your sphere of being or your chakras, whatever framing you want, all mm -hmm. of the energetic uh, challenges and toxification of that into your being also. And no wonder uh, humanity is such a mess. Yes, precisely. This, this, is, wow. the psychic, this is the psychic architecture of colonialism. And 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 yes, you're right. Gandhi figured this out. You know, a bunch of my granduncles and my grandfather went and lived with him on his ashram. And uh, there's there's uh, the stories they have are amazing around this. So uh, so okay, skipping back to the the uh, so this is why do you relate this to colonialism? Um. So before we go to colonialism, let's talk about the nature of the moral toxin. Yes. Right. So. Corporations are also affected by the moral toxin. Yeah. Right? But in corporations, the moral toxin shows up as product liability. Yeah. I guaranteed you that this was 100% peanut free, but I actually bought it from some terrible factory in some terrible country. And then a bunch of my customers got poisoned by the peanuts, and now I'm the one facing the lawsuit. Yeah. Um, there was a crisis where substandard capacitors went into PCs for a few years. Years later, all those PCs, the capacitors popped and the machines just died. And for consumer PCs, okay, maybe, maybe. But for things that were like embedded controllers and SCADA computers and this kind of stuff, it was a crisis. Mm. It was a big deal. Um, you know, uh, steel. Right, substandard. Actually, it was aluminium. Um, there was a substandard aluminium component in one of the legs on one of the uh, Musk SpaceX rockets. The leg folded because they had been sold the thing that it was meant to be one aluminium alloy, but it was actually a different aluminium alloy. The leg buckled. The thing fell over. Ship was lost. So all the way through complex systems engineering, you need the components to be exactly what they say they are, or you have yeah. a problem. Yeah. So there's a unification of corporate and industrial interest with human moral interest. Everybody wants accurate information about what they're buying. Okay. So absorb that. How does Materium get you to that knowledge? So because if you're buying something as an NFT and you're sending the money as a non-repudiatable transaction you need 100% certainty about what you're buying and you need insurance so that if there is an error, you can make a claim on the insurance. Okay. I look at this painting, I 
guarantee you this is Salvador Dali. However, if I'm wrong, there's $2 million of an insurance policy which is associated with this, and you pay me $25,000 every time the painting changes hands for access to that insurance. Hmm. Right. Now, if it's $25,000 for $2 million in insurance, I am damn certain that painting is real. Yeah. Right. If I'm not so sure, like, th there are a lot of phenomenally high-quality Monet forgeries around. So if I'm doing the same deal for a Monet, I might charge you $180,000 for $2 million of insurance. Right. So immediately by the level of cost the that the insurers impose, we can tell how uncertain they are about the deal. And a whole bunch of things are so uncertain, they're simply uninsurable. And, you know, one of the, I want to make a slight segue here. I, I, you know, we help transform companies and we've dealt quite a bit with insurance companies. I was talking to the CEO of Manulife, which is a big $60 billion Canadian insurance company. And they were talking mm -hmm. about where, what is the future of insurance? Mm -hmm. And I made a, made a, uh, kind of a, a stab uh, in the dark in terms of how to think about this. And I said, you know, when when you're looking at a world that's changing so rapidly, take drones, right? By the time a government figures out any kind of regulatory framework for drones and uh, uh, does policy and then enacts legislation, the drone is four generations uh, into the future and uh, the, the entire legislation is relevant. Right. Um, and my thesis around that was, I think what's going to happen is we're going to go into an insurance model where an insurance company is going to go to the government and say, listen, uh, you can't regulate this. Let us regulate this. If we give liability insurance to that application of a drone, then you as the government should just let it go because we've mm -hmm. got the risk model plus the capital backing to make sure that this application works. And so my my conclusion was that most of these fast-moving technology um, industries will end up as product liability uh, and insured under that layer, and the government will step out of it. And I couldn't see any way in which that doesn't happen. Uh, when you look at that kind of an instantiation, do you agree with that or not? Uh, absolutely. So the insurers need trustworthy information before they can assess the risk. So the material asset passport provides the trustworthy information. The insurers then make a decision. The insurance then write the warranty. And that thing about uninsurable, like uninsurable because the insurers can't understand it, you get specialized insurance. But the lag time on getting governments to figure out how to regulate new technologies, you're right. It's absolutely terrible. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And it's completely compatible with our model. And and your the information that you provide. So so let's bridge to how does Materium give the the uh, exhaustive information on the components of a product? How does that happen? So what Materium provides is the slots, the data carrying capacity on the physical asset. Um, so for example, we have a partner company which makes these um, very 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 fancy chips. Let's pop these guys out here. Um, so these guys do digital signatures on chip to verify hmm. the identity of the goods. Okay. Right. So that gives you the ability to identify what the thing is. Then you go to the blockchain, you get the associated data record, right? You, IPFS, right? You don't necessarily, you're yeah. going to store stuff on the chain, but you're going to get it off IPFS. So at that point, the smart contract on the chain tells you who the owner is, 
and they tell you how to buy and sell the object in front of you. I beep the tag. It tells me this thing belongs to, you know, Apple Computer. If I would like to purchase it from Apple Computer, this is how much it will cost me. I send the money. The thing unlocks. Now it's mine. Hmm. As an example, right? Um, or it could be, you know, your property. But you know what you get from the blockchain part of it is you get the owners and you get the APIs to purchase or rent or lease or all the rest of the kind of operations you might want. What you get from IPFS or an equivalent data store is a set of legal contracts, XML files, JSON files, the entire semantic envelope of the object. And some objects need semantic envelopes much more seriously than others. So if I'm buying a gold bar, the semantic envelope has to contain within it for sure the purity of the gold, the weight of the gold. And ideally, it will tell me the origin of the gold. It will tell me the refinery and everything else. But the core value is what's the purity? How much does it weigh? It's a very, very simple semantic web job. For clothing, mm. I need to know the size. I need to know the color. Right? Um, and I mean, I'm sure you've noticed how terrible cloth sizing is. Yeah, horrible. If we could only fix one thing and it was called sizing, we would still be, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, do you know about uh, pit-to-pit sizing? You mean armpit-to-armpit? Armpit-to-armpit sizing. Okay. So the standard for sizing clothing on eBay, not on Amazon, not in retail, nowhere else, just on eBay, is you put the garment flat on a table and you measure the distance from the armpit to the armpit. And okay. you can also measure a few other things like sleeve and inside leg, but you're looking for things where you can measure a straight line with a ruler with a garment flat on a table because it's easy to measure. Hmm. The advice then is that you as the buyer find a piece of clothing you have that fits the way you want it to fit. You put it flat on a table, you measure it the same way, and now we have a matchable metric for garment fit. Right. right? Now, you sort of think, but why wasn't this always done this way? And the answer is because people have anxiety about knowing how large their bodies are. That and, you know, uh, reliably measuring, uh, reliably measuring something armpit to armpit is not that easy. Sometimes you've got to make sure there's, there's no folds or crinkles in it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. but it's okay. a lot easier than trying to get people to measure their body size. Very true. Right? Much easier. So... In that instance, the reliable metric opens up the possibility of doing parameterized search. Only show me garments which have pit-to-pit measurement of X. Mm. Right? You know, 22 inches plus or minus half an inch. Show me what you've got. Oh, by the way, it should also be Pantone 6121 or within 2% of either side of that. Right. Also, the fabric should be any natural material except wool, except merino is okay. Also, it would be very nice if it came with the following fair trade certification, or better still, was bought from a worker-owned cooperative. And also, it would be nice if this thing was within easy logistical reach of my house rather than having it be shipped from the other side of the world. And also, it would be really nice if it wasn't too scratchy, right? So, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, when you have component parts, uh, you need a ton of metadata to carry along with those parts. Mm -hmm. 
then you can have a full bill of sale or bill of lading, lading and know exactly what the component parts are, where they came from, the history, et cetera. And that gives you the trust. And now the good news of, in your model is the is any variability in any of that shows up in the insurance side of things. And that leaves the risk associated with the transaction there, which is a navigable, boundable domain. And therefore you can still do the full transaction. You just make that bigger or smaller as you have. So therefore your model encompasses anything as long as you can get insurance for it and the insurance will vary with the uncertainty of the object. Yep. Wow, very cool. Spot on. Okay. Um, so I wrote a book about this uh, called The Future of Stuff. Uh, and it's only about, you know, 20,000 words long. It's a very small little book. Okay. And it lays out the case for a kind of high-tech Gandhian approach to starting to unpick the problems of consumer capitalism. Um, of course you did. Okay. Well, where can people find that book? Uh, it is available on Amazon. Okay. Future um, of stuff. Right. We'll find the link and make sure it's available. Now, there is another part. Right. One more thing. Okay. Ha! So then there is the question of, okay, we've got very accurate product information. Hmm. Right? First seller, I have very accurate product information. Fantastic. Here's my product information. Thank you very much. I use the thing for eight months. I'm going to move to another continent. It's not worth me lugging this thing with me. I want to resell it. So I've got accurate product information from the original vendor. The object has a digital tag on it, so we can verify that it is the same thing that I was sold. But now we need to do an update on the condition report. Right. Now, the thing that I'm about to describe is the major miracle, right? This is the thing where really the, you, you know, the plane takes off Again, everything up until this point is basically foundation building. Okay. So strap in, because this sounds really like not that big a deal, and I guarantee you'll find it to be the most mind-blowing thing that we've talked about. Hang on, just to prepare for that. Uh, we've talked about getting full and accurate data of the history and component parts of an object, and the metadata of a blockchain object allows you to be the carrier of that. We've talked about the risk in in that knowledge or that any gaps being covered by the insurance so that it's transparent to the transaction itself doesn't put the transaction at risk so all of that is wonderful stuff now we're talking about i buy a camera i use it for six months my my dslr right now is turning off every 20 minutes and uh every time it's doing some of that it's causing a problem and, and if, I, if that was new and I caused that condition, as I go to resell that, you want to be able to encapsulate that. And you've found a way of navigating that. So over to you and let's solve this, the, the last magic jigsaw puzzle piece of this overall picture. Okay. So let's talk about the naive approach to the camera problem. Yeah. Then we'll talk about the world saving approach. Okay. And they are differentiated by only a hair. Right. Bad analogy um, for a bald guy, but okay. <laughs> there we are, right? So the naive approach, right? And the naive approach fits for a whole bunch of classes, but it doesn't produce the large-scale economic systems transformation that I want. So the naive approach is you take it to the camera shop. They do an exhaustive analysis of the camera. They fix anything they can fix. They take it and they put it on their shelf and they give you a condition report. Right. Right. 
Now, the reason that this is the naive approach is this. At that point, the systemic incentives of capitalism are not changed. You just have really efficient second-hand markets with a lot of expertise and a lot of warranties. Yes. Value of second goods, second-hand goods rises because purchasing them is much easier because you get very, very few lemons. But the structure of the economy is still basically take, make, waste, but there's a longer circular period in the middle where the goods go round. Yes. Step one, right? Here is step two. We call this model the spiral economy, and we consider this to be the most disruptive thing that we have our hands on, which is really saying something. Hmm. So if we take it to the local camera shop, the local camera shop has no ability to vary the design of the camera. Yep. But if we send it back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer refurbs and recertifies, the manufacturer is now taking a percentage of your second-hand camera sale. Hmm. Okay. Now, they have some incentives here. The first is that a camera which winds up in the landfill generates the no future revenue. Yes. A camera that cannot be repaired generates the no future revenue. So what they want is a live camera which is being used. Yeah. Now, here I want to put a little detail. The model that most of the people have taken so far when we start talking about these kind of long-term interest relationships is that they tax you for using their products forever. And you derive no benefit from this. Right. Because they do no work for this. Yeah. It's a, it's a printer ink scenario. Right. Whereas if they're doing the work of recertifying and refurbishing the camera, they're doing work for their income. And they're incentivized to make a car wrap, which is highly repairable, which is easy to assess the health of. Right? The fact that you can reliably tell whether the camera is working pretty quickly is so much more useful if the manufacturer is the one that's doing the uh, refurb and recertify. Mm. So now you have the camera, it's yours, you own it completely, you don't pay a tax on it every time you take a picture, you're not being in a position where you're being exploited this way by your property. But when you want to sell it, <clears throat> you pass it to somebody else, but it goes back to Nikon or Canon or Fuji or whoever it's being bought from. It goes back to them. They do the research. They do the refurb. It's still your transaction because you set the price, but they take a cut for doing the research and the refurb. And you and don't because, have to sell And because them, they're doing the recertification and the refurb, you have better validation and, and guarantee that mm. it's done properly the insurance comes down and therefore the transaction becomes more viable. Like the, the pre-author pre-certified used cars coming from a Volvo dealer have in theory, better reliability because they've done that piece of work. Exactly. Okay. So now we're in a position where all the people who are manufacturing durable things, which are valuable and useful, if that durable thing has any complexity to it at all and it needs to be researched and referred between users, it goes back to the original manufacturer. They take an economic interest in the asset when it's resold. And this provides them with a residual income stream for making long-term durable things which are used for centuries. And as we as we mentioned in the in the part one of this, this solves 
planned obsolescence, which is an, a horrible piece of the consumer world. Mm-hmm. That's the beautiful. One. Wait, so I get the get the magic of this. How does Materium facilitate that transaction or that piece of it? So you have the Materium asset passport and you have the digital identity for the object. And what happens in the system is you take that digital identity and you add additional records to it when the camera is uh, recertified and refurbed. Hmm. So it goes back to Nikon. Nikon takes a look at it. Nikon updates the digital passport with the date that it was recertified and refurbed. You know, they know that there are a couple of, I don't know, dead pixels or one of the buttons uh, is cracked but still perfectly functional. They know that the camera is no longer waterproof and overhauling the seals will cost a bunch of money. Do you want to do it or not? Whatever it happens to be. They update the condition report and they keep custody of the camera until it sells. Or they give it to some other custodian. And then when it's sold, they take their cap. Now, right now, the economy has all of the incentives for companies to take no further interest in their products once they're sold, unless they're taxing use. Yes. So we wind up with a world where the companies do not tax use, but they tax resale, which means they want resale. Yes, and the taxing the taxing use part is fraught with uh, danger. Did oh. you hear? Did you hear about the BMW heating seat subscription? Uh, oh, I, I can't. I still can't tell whether that's just efficient or awful. I just can't tell. Well, you know, it 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 seems like a joke, right? Um, uh, in order to get your seats heated, you pay twenty dollars a month, type of thing. Uh, and it's built into the product anyway. It's like they're pushing a button to see if that button will will kind of work or not uh, but, for know, future use. But it really, it, it really is a is a. a, a this is the something you want to try on a sub brand and not on the primary brand of, of a company. I can see how you get there, right? The industrial production line is more efficient with one thing coming off it than two. Yep. And then you just make it an optional feature. You know, I, I can see how, you know, somebody presented a spreadsheet that said it was a good idea, and I'm still not convinced that it isn't. Right? Well, Tesla has made a, um, a living out of that. I've got yeah. full self-driving in my car, and it's not turned on. Uh, yeah. And and it's it's absurd that it's not turned on, but it's not turned on unless I pay the $5,000 fee. Yeah. And, and so this kind of model, right? These are objects that we don't really own. Right. You know, Bruce Sterling, who has been a great mentor to me, we, we worked pretty extensively with Bruce last year and, you know, just like, wow, that guy. Hmm. Um, so Bruce had this concept called the spine. And it was just this notion of sort of like seriously digital property. But he differentiated it from gizmos because gizmos are owned by their creators, whereas a spine is owned by the collective. Mm. Right. You know, you can't see what's happening inside of the phone. You can't update the software. All the metrics only go to Apple. They're taxing you. You feel less empowered for owning a product that works this way. So we don't want a paradigm in which the property is being constantly attached to people by these sort of pay tethers. We don't want right. that. Right. We want outright ownership. Um, now, let me add a, an additional wrinkle here. I, I mentioned that the customers... That the companies are incentivized to have the products be sold over and over and over again. Right. So making a DSLR takes a bunch of, let's say, water, rare earth minerals with huge amounts of extraction behind it, et cetera, et cetera. 
right? Super high purity glasses for the lens. I bet there's a pretty substantial amount of footprint associated with that because at some point you washed off all the atoms that you didn't want, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So most people use that camera, I don't know, six times a year. But it sits in a box, just soaking up their capital the rest of the time. Yeah. Now give me a futures market and an options market for DSLRs. Ooh. Ah, told you this was the big one. Okay. So, so because you have much better knowledge of the camera, you can create that market. Mm-hmm. Your sister is getting married in four months. You option a camera for two weeks. You exercise the option, you get the camera, you use the camera. At the end of that period, you have a put option to push the camera back to the person you bought it from. And this is a substitute for rental. Or you buy the camera without an option and you simply resell it on the open market. Mm. So now your cost of ownership for the camera is the price that you bought it for minus the option price that you could get when you want to sell it. Right, which gives you an absolutely minimized total cost of ownership. So infinitely more efficient uh, from the macroeconomic perspective uh, navigates. So this really enables the sharing economy in a profoundly interesting way. Sharing economy always meant renting economy. Yes. So let me take you through the financial model on this, because this is really where I think we see the global transformation effort. Okay. So. I buy the camera at $2,000. Assuming that it's in good condition, I sell it again at, let's say, 1950 because we've only used a few weeks of the camera's life. There will be a condition report before it's sold and before the option can be exercised. So at this point, you need $2,000 to buy the camera, but two weeks later, you're going to get 1950 back. Right. And at that point, somebody can do a secured loan. Yes. Right. You need insurance to make sure that if the camera is dropped, you don't wind up in the hole, but you have insurance and you have a secured loan on 1950. Wow. And take out an unsecured loan on 50 bucks. Da da. Holy shit. So that collapses GDP in an amazingly effective way. Hmm. Depends on the velocity of the cameras. Yes, true. Okay. Because now, right, I'm a film student in Mexico City. I want access to a $16,000 Leica camera to shoot my sister's wedding. And my total cost of ownership is 80 bucks, but I'm only going to have the camera for 36 hours. Wow. You got it? Yeah, I got it. So now anybody in the world can afford almost anything for short periods. Yeah, and you know, I was noticing uh, today you can use Turo in the US and around mm-hmm. the world now to rent a, a Lamborghini for a day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the exclusivity of only having access to that uh, is is essentially gone, but the experiential 
opportunities become profoundly interesting. So my suggestion is this. A lot of our environmental footprint and the problems of capitalism are beyond environmental footprint, but a lot of our environmental footprint is for the kind of two metric tons of unwanted and disused property that most middle-class people have in their garages and basements. Yeah. If we could get a digital record for all of that property, we could get a price on all of that property, and then we could release the capital. Yeah. Step one. Step two, all of that property is people that want it, right? I have a really cool, probably 12 or 15-year-old waterproof digital camera that has a market value right now of something like $35. Might be 50, right? It's a fossil. And somewhere there is a school kid in you know some village somewhere for who that camera would be super enabling because mm. they don't want to get their phone out on a field trip they want a camera that is just a camera, and if they drop it, it'll bounce or break. Yeah. I can't get the camera to them. I can't get it to a buyer because the time it would, the length of time it would take me to list it in eBay and all the fees and the the shipping and all the rest of those processes, it's just not worth it. Mm. What I want to do is I want to drop it off at some camera store and never see it again, and then $17 shows up in my account later. But that doesn't work unless we can manage all the transactional costs of doing it. And this is where our good friend blockchain comes in. Have you have you seen an Israeli company called Shareit? Check it out. Share it, uh, share it with two Ts. Uh, they're mm-hmm. creating something like this at a very hyper-local basis in Israel, mm-hmm. uh, where people mm-hmm. essentially value all of the goods uh, in their house and yep. get allocated an equity value and then can trade that token around for different goods. There are 400 transport routes around Israel shipping things around between households. Wow, that's amazing. And so there's something, I I think of that in in partnership with what you're doing, Mm -hmm. uh, because the material would enable that and add a a security layer, a robustness layer underneath all of those transactions in a really powerful way. I'll connect you to the CEO of that. That would be fantastic. So you see the kind of the bones of the model. Yeah, yeah. This changes everything. It changes everything. Now, let me fill in two more pieces of this. And this is where we get into opening XO territory. Yep. So now we take our good friend artificial intelligence, right? My sister is having a wedding. I don't have a sister. Let's see your sister. Your sister is having a wedding. She decides that she wants everything to be in the style of a 1950s American diner. And the vibe and the theme will be like Greece. Okay. That's what she wants. That's what she's going to get. So now the AI looks at all of the stuff which is on sale, either for purchase or you want to get an option or whatever the mechanism is. And it takes all of the guests and it sends them a suggested list of the things that they could come in if they wanted to. Mm. Or they have their own robot and it does it for them. But let's assume that her robot is going to do it because, goddamn, it's her party. So the AI sifts through the piles of available objects. It looks at the sizes and the aesthetic preferences of the various guests. It designs two or three outfits for each one. Right. It tells them the price of optioning all of that property. Or if it's cheap enough, it just options it for them. And because we've optioned those outfits, 
if I get a better option, I can release that option and get an, an option something better, right? I option the better thing, then I release the other option. So there's also room for fiddling around with it. But as soon as I've optioned the property, I know what I'm looking at. And the AI handles the enormous data problem of figuring out what does each person get? Hmm. This guy over here, this guy over here is kind of middle-aged and a little portly. Okay, fantastic. Right, so Vinay is going to be wearing the full wig outfit and he's coming as a greaser. And, you know, okay, he can't ride a motorbike, so he's going to be coming as a greaser on foot. Okay, that's fine. We can do that. By the way, you're going to need a wig. It's going to look like this. This is how your hair is going to be done. Here are your glasses. Here's your look. Cost of look, $147. Right? Okay. Or you could come as Elvis. Cost of look, $447. Right. Okay, fine. But all those things, as soon as I'm done, right, they come with an option to sell them back. Or I open market it and off they go to somebody else. Right. So the ability to create these completely aesthetically sculpted AI in the real world environments is dependent on the AI's ability to get hold of physical stuff and arrange it into patterns. Yes. If only somebody had a data layer that would give the AI trustworthy information, including all the stuff that it needs. Right. And by the way, the AI can write into these passwords, not just read from them. So if I have an AI certifier, the AI certifier does condition reporting for handbags. It's got a pile of capital. It looks at the picture of the handbags. It makes a judgment decision about how worn the handbag is, and then it writes a certificate. There doesn't even need to be a human in the loop for a lot of this stuff. So the AI is both the producer and the consumer of the data for certain classes of assets. Pretty good, huh? Fabulous. Okay. Uh, one more. I don't know. Wait, wait, we haven't gone to the right. Finally, right, we've, we've got a few minutes left, so let's touch on that. And then uh, you need to go. I need to go. And we'll definitely have a follow-up. We're going to need a part three here, folks. So now we come to the villages, right? The villages of the world, the poor, the slums, favelas, all of that. Billions of people without access to consumer goods. I did tons of work, 10 years of work on the infrastructure provision for those people in terms of water, sanitation, connectivity, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Most of that work has been superseded by the fact that solar panels are super cheap and straw filters are amazing, right? There's still work to be done. It feels like it's in progress. But then you're in a favela and you want a bike, you want a camera, you want this, you want that, you want the other thing. You don't need it for very long. You don't have very much money. But what you get is all of the hyper-consumption of the West produces an enormous surplus of material goods, which are then distributed globally by markets. So right now, the economic surplus of the West shows up in the form of shipping containers filled with moldy, rotting garbage that are dumped in cities that are meant to recycle the clothing and turn it into new stuff. Right? And you've seen these pictures of the Nigerians just standing on hilltops of rotting acrylic. Yeah. Polyester, right? It's a disaster. It only works if they buy it. Oh, I quite want that digital camera. I'm going to get it as a present for my kids. It's in excellent condition. It's 12 years old, but it's waterproof. It's drop proof and it's super affordable. I'm having that. Right? And if the Western manufacturers are designing goods to be profitable far into the future because they're getting a cut of the recertification action, what happens is we continue to run industrial capitalism hot. Yeah, But goods flow out, rather than being manufactured and flowing into the landfill, the goods flow out and they're manufactured and they flow into the slums and the villages and the favelas and all the rest of these poor people's pockets. 
Wow. Yeah. So you we solve can the landfill problem also. We fill, solve the landfill problem. We take an enormous amount of the sharp end of poverty off, not okay. at the infrastructure public health level, but at the goods and services like in your life level, hmm. um, which is also important, right? Um, we change the incentives of market capitalism to get rid of the concept of designed obsolescence because now for companies, their former catalog is an asset, not a liability. Right? You get things like um, uh, hermit crab chains. You know, professional photographer buys the new camera for 60 grand. They sell their old camera and everybody moves down one camera. Yeah. Right? And at the bottom of that, there's a school kid in Schenectady who gets a fantastic camera for 150 bucks for birthday. And their old camera winds up in Mexico, and the Mexicans' old camera winds up in Guatemala, and the Guatemalans' old camera is in Nigeria. And it continues until the thing breaks so badly you can't fix it. And Nikon says, you know, we're losing money on our 15-year-old cameras breaking. you got to make these things more repairable in the future. It, it also occurs to me that once you launch this model, there's a first-mover advantage to creating durable goods. Yes, sir. Um, and therefore, companies once they cotton onto this, will be uh, highly motivated to do this. This is certainly our hope. Wow. All right. Um, so uh, we have had a second ridiculous conversation. Uh, Vinay, thank you for being with us. This has been amazing. I uh, want to do a follow-up uh, because let's have a conversation about your resilience roadmap. Mm. And then tied into this, right? Um, and offline, I'd love to have a discussion with you because I think for what you're trying to do with uh, our OpenEXO community, this is just such a natural fit. This is a no-brainer. Um, oh, I agree. Because Absolutely. we can do some interesting distribution elements of some of the work that you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the deal-making, right? Just getting this technology into yeah. the hands of real companies that want to change the world. You know, you're dealing with the CEOs of the entities that could be profiting from all the things that they've previously made. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Nice one. Doctor. Vinay Gupta, thank you. A pleasure. So you've just heard um, episode podcast, episode five on the Salima Smell podcast on how do you transform humanity? We just had an inspiring discussion with Vinay Gupta. More episodes like this coming. Uh, stay tuned and we'll see you again sometime soon.